We'll read John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that you would open our minds. Lord, we pray that we would not run from your word, not seek to minimize it in any way, but seek always to learn from it, have it always uh, direct our hearts and our minds uh, to serve you better. We thank you for this, and we pray, Father, that you would uh, awaken us now by your spirit in Christ's name. Amen. This is the fourth of five messages in a series entitled The Five Points of Calvinism. So the first message three weeks ago was enslaved by Satan. And so fallen man from conception is by nature enslaved to do the will of Satan. Now man does this willingly, but in large part unwittingly. Because of his fallen nature, he is apathetic towards God. He thinks only of himself. The next message chosen by Father, Father God, before the foundation of the world, elected some to be in Christ, to be saved by him. God's choice was not dependent on anything foreseen in the human, either in his will or in his works. The third message last week, saved by son, Jesus came to the earth to be the propitiation for the sins of his elect. Jesus gave his life as a ransom for many, not for all. He gave his life as uh, a ransom for his sheep, not for the wolves whom he was criticizing. He gave his life a ransom for his friends, not for his enemies who would not come to faith. He actually refused in the high priestly prayer to even pray for those who would not come to faith. Jesus is the savior of the world. He is the only Savior available to all people of the world, the only mediator between God and man, and anyone who rejects him rejects salvation. Today's message is regenerated by spirit. Now, when I began this three weeks ago, I mentioned to you 
how each sermon has by as the middle word, by. It places man as in a subordinate and a passive role relative to whom is doing the action. And so initially it is we are enslaved by Satan, chosen by Father, saved by Son, now regenerated by Spirit. So you could see that man is passive in every one of these relationships, as he will be next week too when we get to the last one. The eye of tulip is where we are. T-U-L-I. I chose the title for the series, Five Points of Calvinism, in part because I didn't want the emphasis to be on tulip, that acrostic. Yet, it does underlie the whole origination of the five points of Calvinism, in part, because it was to address the five points of the remonstrance. The I, however, really is probably a bad place to put it, the fourth letter. Um, John Piper, in this book, The Five Points, places it second, right after total depravity. He places it there because that's where it logically happens for us. We move from being totally depraved and, and separated from God and enslaved to Satan by his will to enter into his grace. Then we kind of learn lots of details about what has just happened. But really, the irresistibility of God's grace takes us from the depravity that we had before been totally unaware of God in. We may not have liked sin that much, but we certainly liked it far more than God. I was tempted to put the I second, to place irresistible grace at this, as the second point, even if I wasn't going to use tulip as the acrostic. But the reason I didn't is for the reason that I'll now share. The titles, Enslaved by Satan. And so we begin in Satan's dominion, but then we talk about the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The Father choosing us, the Son saving us, and the Spirit regenerating us. This is the way that we tend to think of the Trinity, the Godhead. Father, Son, Spirit. And I thought it was appropriate that we go through them in that order. This reflects what is a theological term regarding the covenant of redemption. That God the Father has chosen, God the Son has saved, and God the Holy Spirit has regenerated. There is a great article on the Monergism site by Louis Burkhoff. If you want to just kind of see the covenant of redemption in its glory, it's just such a beautiful, succinct way that Burkhoff has put it, I believe, on that site. Now, I want to introduce a few more terms. The first is this. In theology, it's common for us to refer to something called the order of salvation. And actually, uh, Phil referred to it earlier, the plan of salvation. The order of salvation is to de define the steps and then sequence them. So I went to Google, who doesn't anymore? And uh, I, honestly, I wished I'd been able to do this back in the early 80s. It would have helped me, I think, immensely in coming to grips with what had happened to me. But so I typed in order of salvation. And then you know that you get the options for the autocomplete. And so like the very first three were order of salvation, Arminian, order of salvation, Calvinist, uh, order of salvation, charts. And so I clicked on charts, and it is interesting that the very first chart I looked at was very, very familiar to me, although it was an Arminian chart. This is what I read, the first thing I read. Here, believe, repent, 
Uh, hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and live a life of obedience to God. That is the order of salvation for the Church of Christ. And that was the very first church that I was a member in, much to those folks' dismay, I think. They really didn't like me all that much after that year. But that is who I was um, indoctrinated into the Bible with. And I enjoyed it, but I really did try their patience at times. Because, let me share with you all eight steps of their order of salvation. It starts over here with two steps that are not under man's responsibility. It's under God's responsibility, and that is that God the Father sent the Savior, and God the, the Son came to be the Savior. Kind of like what we'll see in a minute. But so that, over top of it, was labeled God's responsibility. And then the next six steps, and these are hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and live a life of faithfulness, were man's responsibility. Every one of those six steps in that order of salvation are active. It's something man has to do. And they are biblical. I'm not saying they're not. Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and live a life of obedience. We are to do all of that. But that is their order of salvation. Now, let me share with you a typical Calvinist uh, order of salvation. And the reason I say typical is these will all vary. And mostly, though, they don't vary too much in substance. They vary mostly in... Uh, specificity, the, the specific terms and the granularity of them. Are you using 11 terms or 6 terms or whatever? I'm using 11, and you'll see a few charts out there like this. First, election. Next, redemption. Next, effectual call. Next, regeneration. Um, I've got a competitor out here. Next, faith, repentance, justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and glorification. So we see these 11 steps in this uh, order of salvation. First, let's cover election and, and uh, redemption. These were the previous two sermons. God choosing us, Christ saving us. The Father choosing us, Christ saving us. We are passive in both of those, just as man is in the Church of Christ church. Those first two. God the Father sent the Son. God the Son came and went to the cross. We are, as man, passive in each of those. Yet, then we come to the next steps. The next step is effectual call. And so with the effectual call, what are we? Are we passive? I would say no. I would say we are reactive, however. We respond to the call, and so we react to God's call. And then we have regeneration, where the Holy Spirit has entered our hearts. That we are passive, I say. Then we have faith and repentance. We know that both of these are gifts of God. Ephesians 2 verses 1 through 10 says faith is a gift. 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 26, which we covered under the first sermon in this series, reflects that repentance is a gift. So again, man is a passive recipient of these gifts. We exercise them, we respond, and so I would say that we respond, but we don't take the initiative. Now we come to the last five. Justification, adoption, sanctification, perseverance, glorification. In justification, this is the forensic justification where the glorious exchange occurs, where Christ's righteousness is given to us because our sins are put upon him. 
This is justification, and we are entirely passive in this. Then we have adoption. And I'm tempted to say that we are passive in this, but I believe what Paul is saying in Galatians, that we cry out, Abba, Father, that I believe that when we're adopted, whatever has happened in heaven, when we're adopted, we then experience this greater love for God. He's placed us in what adopted people refer to as their forever family. And that is our forever family. We are adopted as children of God. And we respond to this. We sense this and we love God all the more for it. And then the next one is sanctification. Here, this is the only one of the 11 in the Calvinist order of salvation that I believe shows us man is active. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that doesn't mean God isn't. God is active as well. But then we have perseverance. And again, I believe we are responsive, reactive to God in this. And then glorification. Obviously, we're passive. Uh, there is a popular uh, quit, quit, uh, a funny way of saying that people stop sinning. And one guy says, uh, at death, you stop sinning suddenly. And, and that's what's going to happen to all of us one day by God's grace. We will stop sinning suddenly. And then we know that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So this is wonderful. We would not be in his presence if it were still capable uh, for us to sin. So by my count, I had five passive, five reactive, and one active out of all of these. My first Bible, I had many Bibles actually for that first year, but the first Bible that I bought, it was a study Bible, it was expensive. It was this King James Thompson Chain Reference Bible. And I'm at this Church of Christ, and I'm meeting with these men, I'm studying their order of salvation. Anything they would give me, I would study. I, I was voracious. And I would highlight in the New Testament predominantly, they're kind of a New Testament only uh, denomination, but I would highlight everything that related to hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized, and live a good life. And what's funny, though, is then a year, year and a half later, as I'm becoming reformed, and I began highlighting in that same Bible in yellow where the Calvinist order of salvation was, I don't think I was ever tempted to highlight the same verse. They are distinct. You read through the New Testament, and it's just amazing. I could see the order of salvation from the Church of Christ perspective, but then I could also see the order of salvation from the Calvinist perspective. I still have that Bible. It's still remarkable to me that we can be so blind to see vast portions of Scripture that don't agree with us. But I drove those people crazy for a year because I didn't understand a lot of things. And I asked questions about a lot of the verses that I didn't have highlighted in blue. And they didn't like those questions. These were nice men. I loved these men. But they didn't like my questions, and they really were glad when I left that church. There's another term that is biblical, but it's only used once, and it's conversion. In the New King James Bible, the word conversion occurs only once in Acts 15, verse 3, referring to the conversion of the Gentiles. Now this, we know, though, to be a broad term relating to us being converted to Christianity, being translated from Satan's kingdom to God's kingdom. And again, conversion, I think, can cover a set of each of these orders of salvation that I went through. With the Calvinist, I would say it covers six of the steps. 
effectual call, regeneration, faith, repentance, justification, and adoption. With the Arminian, I would say it goes from here, repent, confess, uh, believe, am I getting it wrong? Here, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. We're going to get to that fifth step. Many in the Church of Christ would say, yes, there are four steps. But many would say that being baptized is essential. Some would even say even required, that you're not saved until you undergo water baptism. There are a couple of terms that I want to mention relative to the effectual call. Our sermon today will actually only go into detail on effectual call and regeneration. I just wanted to give you, though, that big picture, the different picture from the Arminian and Calvinist perspective. So there are, are terms, however, related to effectual call that will uh, come up. Illumination, conviction, and sanctification. A word that actually appears later in its own right, but now we will cover a piece of it having to do with the effectual call. And let me introduce you now to why sanctification occurs at both. Philippians 1.6 says, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. And so we have two aspects of our sanctification here. That God began the work. He set us apart. And then he began us on that path that culminates in our rapid glorification, our rapid stopping of sin. So in the effectual call, however, we'll begin with the call itself. And so there are two. There's a general call. There is an effectual call. And Paul explains the importance of the general call in Romans 10, I think. It's just a beautiful uh, illustration of what is occurring with salvation be expanded beyond the uh, Jews and reaching out to the Gentiles. I'll just give you a couple verses. Verse 14. How then can they call on him in whom they have not believed? How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. In Romans chapter 10, Paul marshals quotes from all over the Old Testament in order to knit together this beautiful picture of the gospel of peace being spread abroad. This is the general call. The offer is made to the whole world at Christ's death. The offer goes out to all the world. Come and be saved. And you see beautiful illustrations of that in the Old Testament. But Paul distinguishes between the general and the effectual calls very clearly at several points, and I'll give you a few of those. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So you see a different effect upon people. And what you're seeing, actually, is a different effect because there are two different calls going out. There is the broad call that goes out to everyone, and yet there is that efficacious call where you are changed, you are transformed by what you've heard. These calls are very different. Jesus illustrates this in two parables. Let me take you to these parables. I won't read the first one, but I will remind you of it. There is the parable of the vineyard, the workers in the vineyard. And you know the story. It's the beginning of the day. The uh, manager of the vineyard goes out and hires people to go work in the vineyard all day. I'm going to pay you a denarius. He comes several times throughout the day up till the last hour. He hires them, but then he starts paying them at the end of the day from that whom has, who has worked one hour down to who has worked the full day. Denarius, 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 denarius. And the last people are very upset with this. And what does Jesus say? This is my stuff. 
I have the right to do with my stuff what I want. Or are you going to call me evil because I'm good to these earlier people that I've let go and given a denarius for less than a day's work? And this is the last sentence in that parable. The last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few are chosen. So you see here that the distinction in the calls are between called and chosen. And you can regard the chosen as the Father's choosing, or right here as the call going out and choosing people to be able to hear it. The next parable is Matthew 22, and I want to read this one. This one is very striking. Matthew 22, verses 1 through 14. The wedding feast. And Jesus answered... And spoke to them again by parable and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. Again he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business. And the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore go into the highways, and as many as you find invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Now, the first thing I want to say is that parables do not exist to teach us good manners. Because this parable does not teach us good manners. And so I would hate to see someone trying to moralize this into some human behavior. No, no, no. Jesus was teaching something very different. For instance, the first parable I shared about the workers. What businessman would do this more than a few times? Because he would find no workers out there to go with him at the start of the day. I'm just going to wait here. I'm going to go join you for the last hour and get my denarius, right? And so, see, these parables mean different things. They're, they're, you can't teach manners from this. What we're seeing is this. The effectual call in relation to this wedding feast, the effectual call is embedded in this. This man shows up without wedding garments. He's not here because he loves God, because he loves these people, because he wants to be here. The story makes it seem like he's as dumbfounded as, as the, uh, the man who's putting on the wedding banquet. And yet, to get cast out into utter darkness, bound hand and foot, that strikes us as a little bit rude. And yet, it's a picture of the fact, and I tell you, this is going on in our world right now, in our culture. Churches in America are filled with people lacking wedding garments. As a matter of fact, recent churches in the last 20 years do this by design. Luring unbelievers into their churches on the expectation 
that they will get into a small home group and then be saved. In the meantime, that church is benefiting greatly by picking their pockets, I would say. And I know of a church here in Omaha that has done this, and I spoke with someone. They were being tasked with setting up a home group. So there are like four couples from their area. Here, go form a home group. So they get together. What do we do? What do we study? None of them, none of them knew how to study the Bible, read the Bible, apply the Bible, teach the Bible. And here they were expected to save one another. And yet they'd been members of this church for a few years, giving their tithes regularly. But they were not saved. And it's sad. And Christ is calling us to account for this type of thing. This is wrong. That's not the way to save people. That's not the way to share the gospel with people. Now, the purpose of parables is actually in Matthew as well. And let's turn there. Because I think it's important for us to just take a brief detour and cover parables generally. The disciples asked him and came to him and said, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear, and shall not understand. And seeing you will see, and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull. Their ears are hard of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. If the call were one, if there is no efficacious call, because really most Armenians would deny that, there is one call. But if there is one call, and this is the call, and Jesus is emitting the call, why does he not want all people to hear it and respond? It makes no sense. It's illogical. Let me give you three verses that explain the effectiveness of the effectual call. John 10, 16. I used this last week. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice. They will hear and respond. These are the Gentiles he's referring to. 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Again, we see contrasted, chosen and called. And called is being used in the efficacious sense here. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel. Earlier I mentioned that there were a few terms that we'll use. One is illumination, and I want to introduce that now. They were illumination, conviction, and sanctification. In uh, Packer's Concise Theology, which I highly recommend, on the entry for illumination is this brief sentence. Illumination, 
which is a lifelong ministry of the Holy Spirit to Christians, starts before conversion with a growing grasp of the truth about Jesus and a growing sense of being measured and exposed by it. Now I realize, and I am so thankful, that many of you have been in the church all of your lives. You don't know a time when you did not know the Lord. But that was not me. I came to the Lord at 19. And yet, after reading this little sentence on this chapter on illumination, it dawned on me that God may have been beginning to illuminate me even years before I became a believer. I was 13, my little sister died of cancer, and I wrestled with her death, the meaning of life, for a long time. And I came away from that wrestling period convinced that there was a God. Because life was illogical if there was not a God. But I did not know that God. And I didn't know how to find that God. And then, a few years later, here I am in the service, and God found me in a very, very big way. But again, though, it began through greater illumination. I'd hardened myself against that illumination that I'd experienced at 13. I went into partying, went into drinking. Here I am in the service, continuing the same. And yet, over the course of six months, this illumination just began to consume me. I was hungry for the truth. And God kept giving me nibbles of it. What's funny is during this entire period, I did not meet one Christian. Yet, I was reading the book of Revelation with a fellow Marine who was not a Christian. And then I was loaned a Bible by a fellow Marine who I roomed with who was not a Christian. He had grown up in the church, but he was not practicing at the time. So I became obsessed with end times relative to Revelation. Who wouldn't be? I mean, that is an amazing book. And we've just uh, enjoyed three years of going through it and with its full meaning. But at that time, I'm just making stuff up. I mean, you can make a lot of stuff up when you read all about the dragon and chasing the child. It's very cool. So I was obsessing with my fellow Marine about this book all the time. We were stationed out in the desert. And I'm not going to go into my full um, uh, testimony. I've given it before, and it's very long. But God did increase that illumination in my life very, very quickly. And it began with this vision where I just saw sin and all of its ugliness. And it wasn't so much in me. It was in the whole world, in society. And I knew when I saw that vision that I needed to fight against this evil that is attempting to rule our world. And I then wrote a girl that I had known in high school, this rambling three-page letter that looks like a psycho, a psycho wrote it, explaining that I needed to fight against the evil that's in the cities. It's much worse in the cities. And, I mean, I don't know what she must have thought, but the very next day, I went with another Marine who I had been, uh, again, pursuing truth with a few months ago. He really, he's so laid back. He's living in Colorado, now retired, and I'm sure he's smoking marijuana all the time. I mean, that's just the type of guy this guy is. And that's what we were doing at the time, uh, 38 years ago. But so I told him all of this, and he tells me, he said, you talk like a guy in my barracks. And we drove, at that moment, seven miles to his other area on base, and we find this guy in the barracks, and he says, show him what you showed me. And he pulls out this little map that's a trifold thing, and it's God's uh, plan for the ages. And it's a dispensational map of these dispensations. And now I know dispensationalism is junk, 
But at the time, when that guy pulled that out and opened it up, I don't even know what he was saying. Because what was ringing in my mind were just two words. God exists. I had known, quote-unquote, God existed for six years. But yet, when I saw that map, and I reflected on everything that had been going on in my life and that vision that I had just seen, I realized God exists. And then, now, I was still seeking the truth. The illumination was still growing. I still really had very little conviction of personal sin. But boy, did that change. When I knew that God existed and that, and that I did not know him, it left me empty. So over the course of several weeks, this made me miserable. And I was just a miserable person to be around. I had been loaned this Bible by my fellow Marine friend, and I just stopped reading it. I was losing interest in reading it because all it reminded me of was that I did not know him. Now, this is where I have to stop the personal stuff. Many of you know the rest of the story. I get a roommate in a few weeks. I use my own words to answer the question of who I need to serve, and I then say, I serve the Lord, and then it changed. Everything changed. I was filled. If I were to put my finger on regeneration, I would have to say that's when it occurred. But all of this illumination and conviction had been going on for weeks and months up to that point. But then relief flooded me that day because finally not only did I know God existed I knew he loved me and I knew he had a plan for me so that takes us to regeneration and really this first element of sanctification bridges the effectual call on regeneration from my perspective regeneration is very controversial regeneration is in a different place in the order of salvation whether you're an Arminian or a Calvinist Arminians place regeneration after faith and repentance. Calvinists place regeneration before faith and repentance. So in other words, with Arminians, regeneration is a result of faith and repentance. With Calvinism, it's the cause of faith and repentance. Acts 16, 14 concerning Lydia. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us, and I'll skip a little section. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. God opening her heart was regeneration. Her heeding was faith. Obedience to the gospel came only after God opened her heart. John 3.3 in the text I read at the start with Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, I always... Jesus is just interesting to study. Look at what... Look at what Nicodemus says to Jesus. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. What's the first thing we might say? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. What does Jesus say? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What an in-your-face response to Nicodemus that Jesus gave him. It's just shocking. But you see what Jesus is saying. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Born again, regeneration. Seeing the kingdom of God, having spiritual eyes, having faith to see. Unless he is born again, he cannot see. 
Jesus asserted to Nicodemus that one must be regenerate to have faith. Faith comes after regeneration, not before. We'll cover this in more detail later. So that was a controversial aspect of regeneration. I want to now cover what is even more controversial, I think, in the church today, and that is baptism. Like I said, for the Church of Christ, uh, baptism is right in their order of salvation. Hear, right? Hear, believe, repent, confess, be baptized. It's the fifth step in the order of salvation. How important is water baptism to God? Does Scripture tell us that water baptism is required for salvation? Well, let's read. Let's read some places. Acts chapter 9, starting at verse 17. This is Paul's conversion. And Ananias went his way and entered the house, and laying his hands on Paul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he received his sight at once, and he arose and was baptized. So there we see kind of a typical Acts baptism. Let's go, though, to where Paul restates this to the mob at Jerusalem in Acts 22. Acts 22, starting at verse 14. The God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Ananias just told Paul to be a Christian and to be saved, he needs water baptism. Right? That's what, how it reads to me. So we must have a water baptism to be saved. And then Jesus himself, in Mark 16, says this. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. But he who does not believe will be condemned. Again, another verse that would seem to prove that water baptism is absolutely essential to salvation. These texts, texts like this, have confused the church for 2,000 years and will likely continue to confuse the church for as long as it exists. But I'm hoping to make this a little more clear for us. Baptism in the Church of Christ, even, is very, very important. And I pressed on these guys, these poor guys. I just did not accept that one step in the order of salvation. I kept saying, but you're saying if I hadn't come here and found you guys and you baptized me, that I would go to hell because I just didn't know about this. They would not say that. I would want to box them into that corner and they would not say it, but they lived out a strong belief that water baptism was absolutely necessary to my salvation. Now, I was immersed. I, as a new believer, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit at a black charismatic church in L.A. A few months later, I'm baptized by immersion in the Church of Christ. I mean, I've been baptized. I haven't been sprinkled. That would have been wonderful. Maybe Phil will do that yet for me. I don't know. But so now, 
they were, I think the Church of Christ was pretty much obsessed with baptism. Most Baptists are. I mean, I, I don't mean to be rude, but Baptists pretty much, that's why it's in their name. They really, really like baptism. So now, this struck me as bothersome, though. And that's part of the reason that I ended up leaving. I just couldn't really relate to what they were saying. It, it didn't square with what had happened to me. Why would God love me, do all that he had done for me miraculously, and yet through my ignorance allow me to go to hell because I didn't have a water baptism? I want to take you to Acts 2. Acts 2, starting at verse 36. This is Peter's phenomenal sermon on the day of Pentecost. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Again, we see, I believe, regeneration present. It's at least strong conviction. They were cut to the heart, it says. Conviction was part of this effectual call, and yet also it could be that, that sanctification, that being cut to the heart. Repent and be baptized. This is man's reaction to what God has already done in their lives. The promise is to you and to as many as the Lord our God will call. Again, we have the call involved here. What I'm sharing is a verse where the yellow and the blue could have mixed we could have seen what, from the Church of Christ's perspective, what man was to do, but we also see what God has already done, and it's mingled together. When Peter is telling them, arise and be baptized for the remission of sins, he's only sharing what it is that has already happened to them, I think. But has it? And that's why I put that question in your handout. Do we know that these people were converted? Or do we merely know that they were strongly strongly convicted. This is the dilemma that we all have, and it's especially the dilemma that elders face. Are you really regenerate? We have to evaluate that based on fruit. We don't see your heart. God sees your heart. Everybody for God is either one or zero. You are saved or you are not saved. But for us, we look around and we're puzzled. We don't know. Because believers can be behave like David did, kill people, sleep with women, horrible things, and yet he's a believer. And unbelievers can keep their lawn beautiful and treat your neighbors wonderfully and yet not know the Lord. So we live in ignorance, and so we must base on our fruit, but yet we sometimes just can't really know. Now I want to return to our, our start text, because this, I think, brings it all together beautifully. I want to read John 3, verse 5. Jesus said, now this is after Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit. Let me say this differently. 
Let me say this. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Who is he speaking to? He's speaking to Nicodemus. Nicodemus is puzzled by this, but he's very, very familiar with all the ceremonial law. He is excellent at the outward conformity to the law. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. When we read this, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, we can see equal weight being placed upon water and Spirit. We read it without inflection. But I believe Jesus was inflecting. He's accusing Nicodemus of only caring about the water baptism. Now, recently I shared with you that some of the Pharisees had come to John the Baptist to be baptized. And remember, he pointed at them. Who warned you? Were any of these Pharisees baptized? Was Nicodemus baptized by John for the remission of sins? I don't know. But Nicodemus seems hungry, right? He seems to be illuminated to a degree to where he's willing to come to Jesus at night, humble himself, even if it is at night. But he's humbling himself as a leader of the nation. What Jesus is saying is that the water alone is not nearly enough. You must be baptized by the Spirit. You must be regenerated. Water is a sign. Baptism of the Spirit is that which is signified. And this, once you see it, becomes very clear. And you can't then allow these quote-unquote proof texts that tell me I'll go to hell if I don't get the water baptism. You don't allow those to set you off. That is the sign. That which is signified is regeneration. To obsess over water is exactly what Jesus is warning Nicodemus not to do. He goes on to say, this is what Jesus said in verse 7. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now what did Jesus say? What did I tell you? He said, do not marvel. What does Nicodemus do? Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? So see, he told him not to marvel. He marveled. Jesus marveled back. What is all this marveling about? Right? There is something going on here. What it is is this. Ezekiel 36 had given Nicodemus all that he needed to know about what was going on. And he ought not be the ignoramus that he is, especially if he's a teacher of Israel. And so now we need to go to Ezekiel to read this. First, Ezekiel 36, and I'll read from verses 22 to 24. This is God speaking, the prophet speaking. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. For absolutely nothing that the Jews have done to earn it God is promising to restore them. But it is for his own name, 
such that his name will be hallowed among all the nations of earth, the Gentiles. And then we go on and read this, starting at verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. So see, God had nothing good to say about Israel in this text, but he is revealing to them that he is going to use them as a beacon to proclaim his worthiness to the entire world. And it's through regeneration. And Jesus rebuked him in John 3 for not knowing this. This is the plan. This is God's plan. You should know better. Now, I want to comment briefly at the close here about this term, irresistible grace. Um, some Armenians are very offended by this. They equate God's irresistible grace with rape. They say that we are saying that God is a spiritual rapist. Now, I want to share two things about irresistible grace. First, it cannot be resisted. It's right there in the title, irresistible grace. God will have his will with all human flesh, whenever he wants, wherever he wants. That doesn't mean that he's a spiritual rapist. What it means, though, is this. God removes anything that obscures our vision of his holiness, of his goodness. When we see that grace, it is irresistible to us. We want it. We want it for ourselves. He brings that illumination, that hunger for the truth. He then convicts us of our sins, and then he reveals the cure. I am the cure. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So see, it's irresistible in two ways. Yes, it's irresistible. God will have his will. But it's irresistible also in the sense that when he removes what it is that's preventing us from seeing God clearly, then we run to him. So God the Father chose the elect. God the Son saved the elect. God the Holy Spirit regenerated the elect. And next week we'll see how God preserves the elect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your care and concern in our lives. Um, we are not worthy of the least of your attention, Lord. Uh, there but for the grace of God, we would be. Your grace has saved us. Your grace has distinguished us from our lost brethren. Lord, we thank you for your mercy and your grace at work in our hearts and our lives. And we ask you to make us um, beacons of hope in our communities, in our families, in whatever sphere of influence we have, we do not exist to bring judgment upon the earth, Lord. Your law does that. But please grant us a loving spirit to love on the lost, to proclaim your goodness to them. We thank you, Father, for this that you have shared with us, and we pray that we would, uh, as good gospel messengers, share it with others. Be with us now, we pray. Guide us into uh, a deeper fellowship and deeper obedience to you and your word. In Christ's name we pray.